Well, it's the end of the year. We did it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming along on this crazy journey called life. Oh, man. Um, things are terrible. Things have been terrible for a while, and things are going to continue to be terrible. Um, I hope you can take some time off, collect your head, uh, enjoy the holiday season. That should be fun. The best thing that came out of this year is that Beatles uh, documentary on Disney+. Plus. Go watch it. This isn't an ad. I loved it. Even as I was watching the first one, I knew I couldn't wait until I could watch it again. It is inspiring um, to see these four guys who are arguably the best of all time at what they do, um, figuring it out, going through the process. It's cool. It's worth your time. It's worth your money. Uh, That's all I got. Enjoy your holidays. Uh, We'll see you mid-January with some uh, some cool folks. Thanks for listening. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Um, thank you all so much for being here. This is indeed the happy hour. This is our last episode of the year, too, so thanks for all for being here on this. Um, I'm going to go around and ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphones. So the listener knows what you sound like and tell us some places where they may have seen your name uh, on their screen also. Um, so Devon, let's start with you. Uh, hi, I am Devon Gregory and uh, I am the showrunner of the game reboot that has started on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, you may have seen me uh, as a professor at USC, you wouldn't have saw me there, but uh, I've done shows like Underground, CSI Cyber, a uh, show called Reckless, started out on Harry's Law and a show called Shark back in the days. and. Uh, my, one of my favorite jobs was I was the writer's assistant for uh, The Shield, which uh, to this day is still one of the best jobs I've ever had in this industry. Oh, that's wild. And we will talk about that. Um, I think I think a few of you have <laughs> assistant work. And we've had, I feel like, all The Shield writers on here over the past decade. So I can't wait to get your perspective on it. So I'm uh, Jen Vestudo. Uh, I'm Melissa Marlette. So uh, Melissa and I were assistants on a show called The Vampire Diaries, where uh, our first writing credit happened. And currently we are on uh, Nancy Drew for The CW. I'm Mello Brown. I have been a writer on American Gods. Uh, a few other shows, what was it? Apple TV Plus's calls. Uh, I am currently writing the official uh, Blade Runner Origins canon. And uh, uh, that's in graphic novel form. And everything else I'm working on is incredibly NDA'd <laughs> and, heavily, <laughs> and heavily just uh, adapting a lot of uh, new, I- well, um, IP from video games into uh, television and movies. Cool. I can't wait to not talk about those with you. Um, <laughs> let's, be- because it has come up already, let's talk um, with Devon, Jen, and Melissa about that assistant route and sort of getting your feet wet in that world. And I think the question that comes up most often is like, you do a good job at that. How do you make it known to your bosses that this is not what you want to do for the rest of your life, that you want to be doing what they do? Um, Devon, what was your journey there? How did you wind up in the shield room? And then how did, you know, how did that help you moving forward? Oh, I'm a recovering lawyer. So that that, kind of happened for me. I I, I, uh, I grew up in a small town in Alabama, ran away to do this, failed miserably because I was sleeping outside my car on Crenshaw Boulevard, realized, oh, Hollywood is a real thing. It's not a dream. You just can't come here, show up, and live happily ever after. So after realizing that, I went back home, cried like a baby, got into school, applied to SC, got rejected. Moved to Atlanta because that's where young black, young African-Americans go to soda, roll your oats and apply to SC one more time and failed again miserably. And it was like, yo, this is not ever going to work. So I remember reading this article in News of Time Week that said 50% of the uh, power players in Hollywood have either JDs or NBA. So then my ghetto math kicked in and I said, hey, 50% JD NBA. If I get a JD or NBA, I got a 50-50 shot. Let's do this. So like a fool i went to law school so they actually ended up working out so forth and so on then my last year of law school i got this job offer to go to jones day reeves and Pogue, second largest law firm in the world but then i had this epiphany like yo you came here 
to be Spike Spielberg. You didn't come here to freaking. Be... So I applied to SC for the third time, boom, got in. And that's kind of how my journey began. So I, I parlayed all of that into somehow getting an interview with Glenn Mazzaro when he was looking for a writer's assistant to replace Randy Huggins, who was moving on with Sean to uh, a show uh, uh, on CBS. And somehow, even though I was overqualified and Glenn didn't want to hire me, he ended up hiring me anyway. And again, that was the best job I ever, the crumbs from the table. Each and every one of those cats are showrunners or have been showrunners. Even all the assistants are now show. Like it's like you wouldn't believe the knowledge and, and the wisdom that we got from that room. So, you know, uh, I would say in answering the question, that uh, the one thing that they knew going in, I was honest from the from the jump that I wanted to be them. I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to understand, I think like they thought, understand the, the highs and the lows, and there was no secret. So uh, uh, from that point, it was just work hard, get better, learn the craft, you know, make them happy, put your vision into their vision and make sure that everything they needed came true. And then, you know, you just roll the dice and, and let the, the pieces fall where they may. That was you, story, so. that, that's bananas. Do you think that you <laughs> was like there anything that you took from your experience at law school that helped you uh, be a better assistant to this to this heavy hitting ground? Oh, absolutely. One hundred percent. One of the things I I was in law school and I knew I wanted to do this. And, and, a, and a gentleman that was an agent, we had uh, entertainment law and he came. Uh, I think his name was Rick Ross. And I remember that because <laughs> Rick Ross, different Rick Ross, but. Of course, you're gonna, never going to forget that. <laughs> and I came, and I remember writing him a letter going, you know, I want to do this. I want to blah, 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 blah. And, and, and it was amazing because he sent the letter back, and it was like, and I got ghetto dyslexic. Let me just tell you, just straight up. Like, I can't even spell my own name if I think I spelled it right. And he, and he wrote me this letter back, and he said, hey, you know what? This, I, I, not many people will tell you this, but this, you need to do better. He said, now I'm top of my law school class, about to come out and make more money than my mom and dad ever made, get old kid. And he tells me I need to do better. And I'm like, man. And instead of getting upset, and instead of getting mad about it, I went, wow. I wrote him a letter. Thank you so much for correcting me. And I took that, and I just said, you got to do better. I, I, I remember I, I would hire somebody to prove for me. You know, like, and I just, that experience taught me that you can always grow. Even though you think you may have gotten to where you need to get to for that moment, you haven't gotten to where you need to for the next and for the next and for the next. And uh, I took that and it helps in the writer's room because you're always getting criticism. You're always going back to the drawing board. And you're always trying to make it better. So that and the fact that I can go left brain, right brain, easily creative, analytical, uh, it helps a lot inside of what I want to do. And, and then coming in and going to law shows and being the only African-American lawyer, black male writer, which you get, you know, pigeonholed into for a while helped a lot too. But, you know, so those are some of the things. Yeah, I think that's, there's some great lessons to be taken there. And we'll, we'll pick up on some of that as we move through. But uh, Jen and Melissa, tell me a little bit, please, about your assistant route. And first, like how you got in the door in the first place. And then how did you start to parlay that into actually writing episodes? Mine was actually, my experience is not that different than Devon's, <laughs> weirdly enough, um, because I moved to, this is my third move to Los Angeles. Uh, I did it twice. Uh, I moved around and went to a couple different schools. Um, I ended up in New York City after I went to Cannes um, as a student, had a film, did like a documentary while I was there through the Adobe program, and then um, came out to LA during the writer's strike. Terrible idea. And then a bunch of my friends who were at Cannes with me said, you know, well, we're in New York and we're working. So you, if you want to come out here, we can hook you up with some people. And so I ended up through a friend of a friend, uh, got a couple of interviews, uh, went with a suitcase and didn't leave <laughs> for three years, um, which was great, I guess, you know, worked on a, a whole bunch of stuff. I was one of the really, really lucky production assistants who got to work on movies um, and television. So I worked almost all year round. Um, and then that experience, uh, in addition to meeting Jen um, on a show out there as production assistants, um, helped me to come out to Los Angeles. And then I was a personal assistant uh, for a couple of uh, music 
they they're called diva so I don't think I'm calling them a diva like that's what they are called so a couple of music divas and then um the culmination of that was finally getting a job as a showrunner's assistant um it was all of the work uh because we were first team PAs which in New York is you're just dealing with the cast and you're dealing with all kinds of personalities and special folks so um that made me able to come out here and then be somebody's everything assistant um, so I was the everything assistant. I wasn't only the show assistant. I was also the personal assistant and I did everything all the time. And um, luckily was able to um, eventually get Jen on the same show with me. And then we were able to get our first writing gig. How did you get Jen on the show with you? That seems very difficult to me. It was accidentally really lucky. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, well, I can explain like, so yeah. when, um, so I graduated college, I lived in New York. I'm from New York. So I was in the city and I was, didn't want to leave. And I said, you know, if I can work in the industry in New York and I love it, I'll stay here. I was a PA and I found out in about five minutes, I did not want to be a UPM. I did not want to be an AD. I did not want to be looking at my watch all the time, worrying about time and money. I was a creative. I went to school for writing. I wanted to be a creative. So everybody that I, you know, my mentors in college all said, you have to go to LA. I was like, when the time is right, I will. And then on a PA, on a, I was a PA on a show called Person of Interest, where Melissa hired me to be her additional PA. And that's where we decided, you know, we both wanted to be writers. Melissa's also a director. So we've had, you know, aspirations to leave New York and to be on the creative side. And I convinced her for a third time to move with me for the first time. And um, basically, I got the first job I could out here, which was as a uh, commercial assistant, uh, commercial agency assistant. So I was working, I kind of did the agency route, um, not intentionally. And again, I learned very quickly, did not want to be an agent, did not want to be a manager, but I learned so much. And I met such great, talented people through that trail that like, it just, you know, it, it, it's further pushed me to what I wanted to do, which was always to be a writer, but it, I learned so many different aspects of the business through that point. So then, yeah, Melissa got the job on Vampire Diaries as a showrunner's assistant. I went to Comic-Con with her that summer. It was like a month after she got the job and she had to go for work. And I said, you know, I've never been to Comic-Con. Let's just, you know, let's go and see how it is. And I met some of the other assistants and some of the other writers on the show and um, got along with all of them great. And then literally a week later, the writer's assistant on Vampire Diaries decided she was leaving the business. And she was like, I'm, I'm moving out of the state and I you know, not going to do this anymore. So the writer's PA on that show got promoted and the PA position opened. And one of the other assistants on the show went to Melissa and said, you know, we have to fill this position. And instead of just, you know, throwing a, a post out there, do you think Jen would be interested? And I got to interview and uh, that was basically, yeah. And then magically we got on the same show for the last two seasons of that, of that show and got to write in season eight. When it came time to write, presumably uh, Julie Pleck, who was running the show, knew that you were a team, knew you wanted to write. Um, tell me a little bit about like making that leap. You know, you'd been in the room, you'd been part of the process. Was it still a difficult transition? How, like, how did, how did that feel at the time? Well, it was actually, it was my boss, Melinda Shu Taylor, who is the showrunner of Nancy Drew. She was an EP on that show. So in season seven, I was the PA and season eight, I was her, I became her assistant. I got promoted. And Melinda became really a mentor to us and still is to this day. I mean, she obviously, you know, she gave us our first staff gig and she's kept us on our show, knock on wood, for four seasons. Um, so, you know, she was really somebody who had read all of our work and said, you know, you guys are talented. Clearly, like, you know, you you belong in a room. We're on the last season of the show. But um, the opportunity for a freelance came up on an episode, it was the penultimate episode of the season. And it was the episode that Melinda was writing was the last episode that she was going to write of the show. And she, uh, as far as we understand, went to Julie and said, um, I would love for Vestido and Marlette to write on this with me. Um, you know, would you be cool with that? And, and Julie thankfully said yes. And we broke the whole episode with Melinda. We went to Atlanta for production. We got to see everything. Melinda actually like left halfway through because she knew she she was she could trust us because we had been on so many sets before and we had been in the room and she was like, you know, I trust you implicitly, like just, you know, Chris Grismer, who was a great director of television was directing the episode. So there was just a lot of really like trust that was really awesome. And, and Melinda was really great um, 
in shepherding us in that way. Um, very grateful to her always. Oh, that's terrific. That's and it feels like such a like an unusually easy way in uh, like to make that transition. Uh, there wasn't too much pressure on you. You were trusted, which is really nice. Um, that's great. I want to pick up there when we come back. Um, but speaking of Comic Con, Melo, um, I feel like, and and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is I feel like you've had a career not dissimilar to mine, where you know, you are saying yes to a lot of things and you're sort of working in a, basically whoever's going to pay you, right? You're doing comics, you're doing TV, you're doing video games, like whatever it is. Way to put me on the spot. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> But like this, listen, I've been doing this for a decade and it's been a similar thing. And like so much of it is satisfying and so much of it is like still getting to tell the stories I want to tell within different frameworks. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that I mean, that hustle, right? Like, we all have to have that hustle. Um, does it get easier? Has it gotten easier for you? Do you feel like you're getting to tell the stories that you want to tell? That is, I definitely think that I am getting closer to telling more and more of the stories that I want to tell. It's one of those, uh, if you get one good yes, then you're able to prove yourself. But you have to be able to tell this magnificent story that no one's ever seen before and you have to pour your heart into it and then you're just like see rebellion is good in the story you know sometimes and um uh, as we we come to an age where um you know like we we do have a lot of uh stories that kind of end where it's just like and then everything went back to the status quo and my style is more um but what if we try to break the chain you know kind of thing and uh as I start to build out more and more stories and obviously two to three samples a year <laughs> to send out uh, in every single genre, just so that way I can hit every room possible. <laughs> like if it's, if it's a dramatic comedy with aliens, they're just like, yeah, mellow, that's it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it, I, I think it's easier now that I have uh, done that. But the other thing that I've also done is that I have started to back away from watching Western television. Um, one thing that has been very effective for me is that uh, well, as I work with a lot of peers, everyone kind of like sits down in a room. And the first thing you talked about was like, did you see su Succession last night? Did you see, et cetera? Like the, we all watch the same shows and it starts to become like we start to cannibalize the same thing we and in the process of doing that we accidentally unpurposely start to come up with very similar ideas and then those things start to rotate so every producer is reading those scripts and they're just like yeah they clearly like Atlanta and Fleabag you know <laughs> as they start to read things and um it, the thing that I've actually been doing is just like what if I watch something from east what if I watched uh a lot of stuff like you know like uh, seeing where like squid game came from and seeing that there's an entire writing style based around that um in the east called non-battle battle where there's a there's a book there's a thriller called tears of god that's about just wine tasting and it will keep you on the edge of your seat believe it or not but they figured out a technique as to how to do that so i started to apply those things to western stories and they're just like this is surprisingly i, I can't believe i'm on the edge of my seat on a story about the inflation crisis. And um, yeah, that's the stuff that I've been using to get noticed. So I think it is a level like it's getting easier because now I know how to, you know, like it's it's like martial arts. You, if everyone comes in with Kung Fu and you start using karate, you're going to slip everybody up a little bit. And they're just like, that guy knows karate, y'all. <laughs> and so you start, you start getting more jobs. Is there resistance to something new or different or unexpected? You know, how do we, look, the, the whole game seems to be balancing what people want and expect with what, with our unique voices, right? And presume, hopefully, in the best case scenario, those go hand in hand. But, you know, tell me a little bit about finding that balance. It yeah. never changes. Yeah. It never changes. It doesn't, it, it... It never changed. I've run two shows now, and those fights at the top are still 
what they expect versus what you want to do, the the swings that you want to take versus you know the 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 uh, the expectation of what they think the audience expects. So it's all like an expectancy of expectation. It's like it's it's weird and it never really changes because as people get closer and closer to spending that amount of money and taking those amount of risk, they also get more conservative. They just do. It's just a natural kind of innate thing that humans you know gravitate toward. So it does not change no matter what level you're on. You're going to still have to fight those battles. I think what Melo is saying and what uh, you know I applaud him for is that once you learn how to do it and you put it in your quiver, you know, you take it with you. Uh, and you, you just, you know, what I've learned to do as I've, you know, uh, uh, kind of grown in the industry is I've learned to pick my battles wisely and I've learned to be a little bit more political in how I pick those battles and, and how I exercise, exercise and, and, and fight those battles. So, you know, I, and I think that, you know, my, my mom always said to me, you know, Alabama boy, she said, you can catch more, uh, uh, you can catch more flies with sugar than you can with, you know, crap, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it, I, I, I've always remembered that, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, 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 you know, that's one of the things that uh, I try to take with me, but it does not change and I don't think it ever will. And, I mean, Spielberg still gets nose. He just gets him quieter and, you know, <laughs> and, and less amount than we do, so. Well, let's talk about that for a sec in regard to um, the game, which, you know, like there are expectations loaded into this show. Um, Right. It's it's a reboot. You're bringing back something that is beloved. Um, how do you grapple with that first at the sort of network and executive level, but then with the fans, too? Well, you start by saying, no, I'm not going to do this. There's no way in Hades I'm going to put myself <laughs> out there because it could only go back. So, so you start you start there. Did you resist <laughs> you it? Know, I said no. I said, I am not doing it. Because look, first of all, Mara Brock and Keel brought me on uh, to being Mary Jane. So I, you know, and, and she was doing half hours. So I was a, a drama writer. I was an hour writer. You know what I'm saying? I had some comedy skills, blah, blah, blah. But she had never done an hour. So, so when, when being Mary Jane came up, I was one of the first hour writers that she, you know, brought on. And it's a different world. If, you, if you've lived in that world, it's a different voice, like writing a feature versus writing for television. Like those are different muscles and different skill sets that, that you use. So knowing her, you know, uh, and, and I love her, she's great. But I also knew how iconic the show was. So I, 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 in my mind, like 10 things could happen and 9.75 of those were bad. Like there was just 0.25% chance of, of something that could happen. So I said no and went off to develop a show with Bruckheimer and, you know, and, and CBS TV came back and they asked me again and, you know, and that show fell apart and, you know, and then I sat down with Mara and we came up with this great idea for the CW where you guys are working at now and that one fell apart. And then I was like, okay, let's go on and do something else. And, you know, and then it came back around with Paramount Plus and they said, hey, what would you do if you could do this? Sand by yourself and tomorrow it's got a Netflix deal. And I sat down, Melo kind of deal with you. I was like, yeah, how can I? Hmm. You know, just me. Just by myself. Like if I was sitting down and you know in the shower one night with a glass of wine and you know what I'm saying, like what could I do? I'm like, yeah, this is what I do. And 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 then you know, this whole idea came up about like kind of flipping it on his head and not having to bring everybody back, even though that made a lot of the fans mad, so forth and so on. So I got I got excited about it, and that's kind of how it. You know, that's kind of how the yes came about in a real way. Because yes with Mara and her taking the arrows <laughs> is different than yes with Devon taking the arrows. Sure. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how it happened. When when you had that version that got you excited about it, was it easy to get Paramount excited about it? Yeah, it actually was because I got excited about it. CBS TV Studios got excited about it. This is where I had my deal. And then, you know, we when we took it to them, and it was kind of like, it was like, yo, it's an amalgam. It's kind of like, you know, the world as it is today, but it's flipped on its head through this, you know, through this, through this ism prism, racism, sexism, ageism, hairism, you know what I'm saying? So, and it's all set against the backdrop of footballism, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I'm making it up. But still, that's kind of how we did. And it was like, yo, this is, this is different and the characters were different, even though, you know, we came with this concept called familiar, but fresh, familiar to anybody who had, you know, seen the show before, fresh to anybody coming in or anybody who wants to give it a new look. And they kind of, you know, we packaged it up and kind of like this, you know, this, you know, this sales document of familiar, but fresh and all these different ideas. And it became kind of exciting to be able to say, yo, we're going to attack this and do it in a different way. And we're going to take shots. Not everybody's going to like it, but if you give it a chance, whether you like it or not, it's going to be something that we're going to, you know, be proud of, of having done. So that's kind of how, you know, I attacked the whole 
process. And I think that's how we should attack everything. You know, everything that we do, we don't get that opportunity, you know, um, but in having that one, it allowed me to then say yes and be fully invested. That's really cool. Um, and I want to I want to pick that up uh, when we come back and talk about like how that translates to working in the room and with other writers and what what they want to do and what their voices are. Um, because Jen and Melissa and Mello, you've all been in those shoes. You've been writers in those rooms on existing IP. Um, and I want to talk about like, are there conversations that go on that are like, can can Nancy Drew do this? Can we do this on a Nancy Drew? Uh, can we do this with Blade Runner? Like, is that allowed? Um, so uh, Jen and Melissa, why don't you guys start us off and like talk about working within those confines and still getting to tell the stories that you and the room wants to tell? We'll definitely say that the the original concept of the show in, in its first season, so we have um, something that Nancy Drew the books didn't have, which is a supernatural element to it. Uh, it, the town that Nancy lives in and her friends is a, is a haunted town. So there's a lot of ghosts and things that we can, um, we could really explore. And we also, you know, a big departure from the books, um, is that we have a lot more of, you know, diversity in the cast. There is, you know, and George Fan is played by an Asian, a fantastic Asian actress, um, Leah Lewis, uh, Ned Nickerson, who was Nancy's love interest is, uh, Tunji Kasim, who is this incredible actor. He's a black man from Scotland, I believe. Um, so we really tried to populate the world with a lot of different types of people and to have it really be a show that is not your typical Nancy Drew books. Um, Nancy's also, she's a young adult, so she is, um, having some of the sex, which is something that in originally the original, uh, viewers of the show who were expecting like the put together Nancy Drew of the books were a little, uh, put, you know, thrown by but uh, I think for the most part we've gotten people through that we are a CW show after all so there has to be a little bit of of that um going on but it you know but beyond that um you know Noga Landau who's our, our co-founder with Melinda uh, they both are very open to really having big conversations and talking about important issues and uh you know really giving our audience credit that they want to see more than just a, you know, hot, steamy love triangle show it we're, we're able to have a little bit more of a, of a conversation. Um, I think we explore a lot of themes uh, in that way. Um, so, yeah, I think, yes, we've had conversations that are like, should we do this on Nancy Drew? But we also have said like, let's take a big swing and let's just do it and see, you know, what the studio and the network will say. And, and to their credit, a lot of times they are totally cool with us doing a lot of that stuff because they know that the audience wants to see that. Sure. Is there like an essential Nancy Drewness that is sort of the North Star uh, to the show where you, if you hold on to that, you do get to do all these other things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just about what what is who is nancy and and what is nancy's driving force and i think as long as we are and and i don't know how much of that really has ever changed you know it is about nancy always trying to get to the bottom of something and and sometimes at at the expense of herself and others and that's the mistake of always trying to get to the truth which has its goods and its bads and i think as long as we are staying true to the the thing behind Nancy and what she's always looking for, then the rest of the story always seems to fall in place because that is the North Star of looking for that thing, even if it, you know, makes you feel like shit, if it makes her feel like shit. Like it's it's about really just figuring out what has to be figured out. And then the consequences are how the characters all are working with each other and they're working through their drama and their problems. And we are just incredibly lucky to have a really talented cast. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, just a wealth of, of talent with these guys and seeing them take each of these stories, whether it's something that's kind of funny or something that's really serious. And, and our most recent episode was quite the roller coaster of emotions because it was half of it was this really hilarious thing. And the other half was just gut wrenching. And it was like, yeah, we feel bad because it's, it was just this crazy thing, but it's all really about just getting, getting to the bottom of whatever it is. And then the characters work it out with each other. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Mello, I'll throw the same question your way. I mean, having worked on uh, American Gods and working on this um, Blade Runner graphic novel series, like these are big IP that people love. 
Um, like, let's talk about Blade Runner for a sec because you're really you're you're writing those, um, and I would imagine there's a lot of you can do this in the Blade Runner universe. You can't do that. Have you run into that stuff? How do you formulate your stories around that? So this is one of the first times I've ever set this into a microphone. Um, so Blade Runner is uh, a property that I, I grew up with. And as I got older, it got rougher and rougher as I started to realize like, oh, um, people of color don't exactly exist in the future. And the more important thing was uh, Blade Runners are slave catchers. And uh, the, the replicants are realized people who start to gain their like idealization and identity and immediately they're like, oh, I'm enslaved and I want to run. And uh, Blade Runners killed them. And it was very weird the day that they were just like, do you want to write this thing? <laughs> do you want to write the official origin story to Ridley Scott's movie? And uh, my response was just like, so about the slave catcher thing? And can, and can we be, you know, like, cool to women? We kill them all in this series. And like, can like, you know, can like brown people be like, can can they do okay somewhere in here, you know? And um, and as I started to pour out everything that I wanted to do with the story and um, the ending of the first year of this book changes everything for Blade Runner going forward um, to the point where um, the official uh, ending of this particular season is uh, going to be uh, I'm okay saying it here is that we are going to sabotage every Blade Runner going forward so that way we're kicking the poles of the system down because every Blade Runner is designed to fail and this was my presentation to them as to like this is what I want Blade Runner to be and they're like we'll get back to you <laughs> so I didn't, hear, I didn't hear from them for about like a, a, a while I'm like if I don't go all in then every time I'm going to write something I don't think my heart will be into it. And I approach every property that way. If um, I'm gonna write something that is bad for women, if it's bad for the trans community, if it's bad for just like, if I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna be like, why did I do that? Like, then I shouldn't be on this project. I shouldn't be doing this project. And I'm gonna pitch what I think is the best version of that. But I have to make it feel, even if it's not, I have to make it feel like a masterpiece. And I have to give them what they need. And in the process of doing that, I have to give them a little sugar. I'm like, what if we took the noir cyberpunk nature of Blade Runner? Because Blade Runner doesn't make a whole lot of money. Um, every, uh, it, like, it, you know, I, I apologize, Michael Green. I know you're listening to this. <laughs> he's, he's my mentor. <laughs> uh, um, uh, both Blade Runner movies didn't do well at the box office. Uh, and, but they have these tremendous cult followings that happen afterwards. And I'm just like, what if we took the noir cyberpunk nature of Blade Runner and we also threw in something like Grindhouse. What if like the raw visceral emotion of the fact that these people, people of color, women, um, the fact that we're talking about bodies and bodies and, and their values going into the future with replicants or, and claiming identity should be a trans story as well. And these people will fight and claw and rip everything apart just to exist is the grindhouse emotion that we need to move forward. What if we made that Blade Runner? And what if we made that what we do going into the future? And that is the only way I, I, I could write it for myself. And they uh, they bought into that, I guess. <laughs> and, and, here, and here I am. And um, yeah, so I've, so to answer your question, yes. <laughs> I've, I've definitely ran into that. But ultimately, and I think, you know, Devon was sort of talking about this too, that like your passion for the project convinces others, right? Like you are telling them that this is the way that I need to do this. And it's exciting that they can see that. You can convey that and they can they can get on board with your vision for it. Um, Devon, I, I wanted to pick up on talking about the working on the game uh, in the writer's room. And like conveying the vision that you had, the excitement that you had for this new version to the writers that you hired and then giving them their voices. Like what, what did you want from a room and how did you tell them what you wanted? Well, 
I'm a big sports fan, so I kind of put the room together, kind of like you put a, a sports team together, a basketball team, a football team, like, you know, because you, you realize quickly that um, uh, people have strengths, people have uh, opportunities to grow, uh, people have areas that they're more interested in. So if I need a three-point shooter that can't rebound, then that's fine because I got a spot for a three-point shooter. If I need somebody to play defense, that's great. Like, you know, like, so that's kind of how I went about putting the room together. And I have this one saying that uh, we kind of, you know, that I kind of ascribe to when I'm looking for right. First of all, I read everybody blind. So if you're coming to me, you know, saying it doesn't matter who you are, I, even even the network, send it to me blind because I don't, you know, we'll start there and then we'll break down who I need from that pile out, out of there. So, um, but we have this um, this one thing that kind of that kind of coalesces around the way that I would I like to put a room together, and that's we're doing life together. Like this isn't, you know, I mean, we're not, this isn't rock and science. We're not, this is not brain surgery, but we are doing life together. We spend so much time with one another. Like we spend more time together than we do with our significant others than we do, than I do with my kids, you know? So we're doing life together. So that means that you need to take care of you. So I always tell them, if there's something you need to do, you let me know. This is, I'm, there's not, I'm not going to look sideways, get to work done, play hard, work hard. And then, you know, I find that if you buy into each one of your writers, if you buy into their dreams, if you need to take a meeting, don't lie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's okay. You know what I'm saying? Tell me. Let's get you some help. Take the meeting, come back, and let's kill it. Because if you can buy into what we're doing, if you can catch the vision, catch the dream, and we can ride together, you know I care about what you're doing as much as I care about this show, and you care about this show as much as you care about what you're doing, then we're going to be doing something special together. So I say let's catch the vision. Hopefully the vision is beautiful and lovely, but then let's catch each other. Let's do life together and let you know I care about what you're doing on a real level, on a human level, uh, 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 in a way that you that you can buy in and tie in and make this the best experience. And then I'll say, hey, I don't know everything. I'm not here to know everything. And if I did know everything, I wouldn't need you. <laughs> if I could do it all, why, why are you here? And I need you to check my thinking. I need as a, as a female viewer, as you know, whatever, whatever's going on, I need you to check where I am. I need you to check my blind spots. I need to, I need to be able to fail in front of you. I need to be able to be open in front of you. You know, yes, I get last say, but one of the things I learned in the shield room that I take it with me everywhere I've gone and I will take with me to the grave or at least till I'm finished writing for Hollywood. Best idea wins. Like I was in the shield room with Sean Ryan, and Sean turned to me as a writer's assistant and went, Devon, you're a lawyer. What do you think? I don't know. He's like, no, he's like, seriously. And this is what, what, what would they do? And this is, and I went, oh, they would do A, B, and C. And Sean would like, A, B, and C, do it. And it popped up on screen three weeks later, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Wow, best idea won. Over, over, over Glenn Mazzaro, over Kurt Sutter, over Sarah, and, and you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, over everybody. And I, I've tried to take that with me. So that's kind of some of the things that I look for in, in writers, you know, talent, you know, wins out to a certain level, who you are, how you fit, how it fits together as a room. And then with the understanding that we're not here to backstab, we're not here to take advantage of the system or anybody else. And we're here to, you know, push the envelope, yes. But it's about how we uh, uh, work together and play together in the sandbox as well as anything else. I actually have a question there for that. Like when uh, we did the, the best idea in that particular situation, were you like pitching real hard in that particular moment in the movie? Like, were you like, I need this, like, I am selling this, like, this needs to be my idea? Or is it just like, yo, this idea is dope? No, I did not because I, I didn't want to come across as, um, as, you know, desperate. I wanted to come across like, yo, I'm here for you whenever you need. And I got a million of them. This isn't the only one. So even if it doesn't land, I'll be back just like everybody in the room were. You know, just so I took that and tried to assimilate it into what was going on, you know. So, no, I didn't. And it landed. And, you know, it, you know, I, I was the one that gave uh, 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 lupus to, <laughs> to Claudette. Like, <laughs> it came back and they were like, we did, Sean came back. He's like, I need a, I, you know, I need some, what's the disease? We want something. We don't want to be too heavy. Don't need cancer. And I went now back. Now I want to see a passionate pitch from lupus. lupus. She can smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I was like, she can smoke weed. She's a cop. Because you can think about the blind she got across. She can hide it. And he's like, oh, that's kind of cool. And boom, she had lupus. So I, I didn't want to seem desperate, but it was, it was. Uh, it, take those opportunities. To anybody who's listening, take those opportunities and be prepared. And know. Here's the thing, though, and this is something that you don't learn in in film school. You don't learn, you know, kind of. You learn it by trial and error, and that is there's levels to this. There's the knowledge level. You gotta know, you gotta respect your craft. 
there's also the relationship level. You got to get along with others and you got to, you know, I, I hate to say clicks, but you got to be able to maneuver between them. And then that's the political level. You got to know when and how and what and who. Like there are different levels that it took me a while to kind of, you know, understand and organize and go, oh, wow, you plan on, you know, you plan on three different worlds here and you got to make sure that you, you know, you understand all of them and can excel at all. Of them. Like you can't learn that in film school. You have to just sort of be in the system and experiencing this stuff and meeting different people and having different experiences. It's part of what makes this job so hard, right? There's so many opportunities to make mistakes. <laughs> and you don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot of second chances in this industry. No. So, you know, you know, it's like, you know, I think, well, you, you, you uh, Melissa, you mentioned that you were, uh, uh, you came here doing a writer strike. Well, I was just starting in the right, when I was on a writer strike, I think I was, I was on Shark. It was my second, you know, second year. And uh, I remember not getting, we, we got uh, cut. Uh, we, we, we didn't get picked up after the end. And then I was, uh, um, uh, I went out, didn't get picked up. And the whole joke was, and I still use this to this, to this day, is you're out of work one year, you're a writer, you're out of work two cycles, you're a waiter. Like, <laughs> and that's kind of like what it was. Like, you know, <laughs> the second cycle is like, you're never getting back in, you know? It, so it's hard. <laughs> it was rough. It was rough. I, I was on the end of uh, Desperate Housewives season 4.1. Uh, when I, when I got out here, I think it was, and I, um, I swindled my way into that oh. even like, that was really hard. I, I, um, went through, I went through casting and I got cast as a background person for a really busy day. And then I found a PA and I said, Hey, I don't want to be doing background. I want to be a PA. So if you ever need to call out, you need any additional PAs, give me a call. And I want to say it was a week later, he left early and, uh, Chris Griffey, I believe is his name. And, um, and then he left early and called me and I, my last couple of days on the set and it's my first time I've ever really on a back lot. And, uh, it was, it was wild. And that, that kind of gave me the PA resume that I needed to continue. That forward. is wild. Um, I mean, this is, it, it touches on what I was talking about earlier, which is like, it's a hustle, right? Like you, you never stop. And as long as you are writing, as long as you're, you know, like Mello said, he's churning out three samples every year because uh, you just want to keep getting better at the crafts and you do this other stuff. So as Devon was saying, you can learn those other two rungs, right? Learn to to negotiate the, the business as you work on your craft. Good Lord. Since this is our last episode of the year, let's talk about this past year. <laughs> In fact, let's talk about these last three years and how great they've been. Uh, um, yeah. What are you all doing to keep yourselves excited about the work, inspired to do the work, and just to keep in the game? Uh, and anyone who wants to jump in, please do. Well, Mello um, was talking about watching shows from other places, and I, I realize this question will come up later, but um, one of the things Jen and I love to do when we're in between seasons is watch foreign television. <laughs> and, um, you know, the last couple of years have been fantastic for foreign television, and it's hard not to be excited because... You know, as a writer in in this world, in our world, um, there is a certain amount of, you know, uh, predictability because that's your job, right? Like, I know what's probably going to happen here. There's one of three things that could happen here if I'm watching an American television show because that's my job. I'm supposed to know how to talk to the audience through being a writer. So that shorthand, that predictability that we see as writers is just a shorthand for us to talk to the audience. But when you're watching foreign television that is not working by the same set of rules you know a lot of british tv is six episodes right but it's episode two and you've been watching this you know these two these two characters that seem like it's a love interest and this girl is flying out of a window you're like i would have never seen that coming because we would never do that you know so it's it, it's ability to shock you and its ability to work so differently um, we watched this german show called dark which i'm a huge fan of um, it's one of this really elaborate fantastic show that shows you it's like it shows your work right like when you used to be in school and the teachers like show your work you can see the work you can see how much 
energy and time and thought and all that was put into it. And that's an inspiration. I'm like, how do I, I want to do that. Like, what could I do with that idea of putting all of that laid out map into something that, you know, by the time you're in season three, you're like, they had to know three seasons of TV to get here. And, and that is so exciting, you know, and it just really gives you, it's not that American TV isn't exciting. It is. We love American TV, but it's just that thing where it makes your brain work differently. Like what Mello was saying, you have to be able to look at it in a different way. And then you go back to what you do and you go, how can I take this that I saw and apply it over here and make it unique yeah, and different. That's, that's a great answer. Um, what about the rest of you? What are you doing to keep yourselves sane or what have you been doing to keep yourselves sane and, and inspired too? Um, I guess a lot of what uh, has been making me really excited is that uh, uh, the same way that we've gone through like the golden age of television and we've been going in and out of it for the past few years, um, The uh, it's weird. The anime industry is doing that at a level I've never <laughs> seen before. Um, the, like the way that we had something like what you would call like succession right now, a masterpiece, you would call WandaVision in a way it deals with grief, just like a masterclass in writing and how to express that and anime at the moment, it's almost terrifying that every month they have three that are just as good at the moment. Uh, there's been stuff like hot taxi that is the best noir story about just the inner workings of people and how they react to things. They have something like Wonder Egg Priority that is one of the best pilots I've ever seen. That's just about uh, young women who are trying to help each other uh, as they are trying to retroactively try to save other young women that have taken their own life and uh, bring them back. But in the process, they have to uh, defeat a physical manifestation that it caused them to take their life to begin with. It's it's just been some really, really amazing stuff that's coming from there. And it's one of those things where like, I look back at everything that we're doing at the West and I'm just like, we can still apply those things here. We can subvert genres. We can change the way that we look at stuff. We could take the sleepy suburban crime drama and flip it on its head and yo Jimbo the whole thing. And it's, it, it's been really, really fun. It's been making me just like, yeah, like I, I could write an action show about volleyball, you know, <laughs> and like I could get someone like in tears while they're doing this because it reminds me that like the the thing that I love most personally about writing is pulling that emotion out of somebody. Like I, I, I like the uh, making people do like the the old man, like the the old black dad thing of just like uh, like he's really into watching this show, but he doesn't want to commit. So he's been standing this whole time. <laughs> if I can make the, yeah. and, and then like everybody, like I just want to get everybody to the point where like you're watching two people just do something very simple, but like the tension is so high that like you can't sit down. You're kind of sweating. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're just on the edge of your seat. And I've been finding more and more techniques and ways that I can work that into my writing. And it's been going really well. And it's, it's making me especially love what I do. That's really cool. And that's really exciting. And honestly, inspiring to hear too. Um, Devon, I'm going to have you answer the same question. These past couple of years, uh, it seems like you've been very busy. You know, you've been pitching shows, you've been creating shows, but it's hard too. It's harder than it's ever been. How are you, how do you keep going? It was a difficult time, like COVID hit, and then you went through, you know, the George Floyd situation. We went through all of these different um, kind of touchstones in our in our world, and um, but I got to say that wasn't the toughest part of it for me, because as an African American male, you wouldn't believe the trauma that we've been through. So we, you know, what I'm saying, like you, you know, we, we find ourselves kind of getting, I, I, I won't say callous towards it, or you know, we build up this thickness, this wall. But it's phony, it's fake because it doesn't go anywhere. We just learn how to Clintonize it, the part compartmentalize it. We we put it in its own place, in its own box, and it comes out in, in weird kind of ways at unexpected times, whether that's heart disease or anxiety or depression or all these other things that you're dealing with. But for me, it was a really odd time. And I say it was odd because not only was I dealing with like all this stuff that was going on in the world. I was dealing with something I've never done with before, and that's major success. 
And that success led to an odd place. It led to kind of survivor's remorse. I, I don't know what was going on, but I had I had ascended to the highest level that I had ever gone, you know, gotten to. I'd gotten a deal and it was a three-year deal. It was like, it was like what? They believe me this much. I gotten a show picked up. I was, you know, shepherding another person. The company was rolling. You know, it was the best of the year creatively and financially. You know, all these things, dreams were coming true. And I could feel nothing but regret and anxiety and depression. And I'm like, why me, Lord? Like, what's going on? Like, all these things that I had worked for all this time, I was feeling like, but my brothers and my like all these, and I just, I couldn't deal with it. And, and I didn't know what was going on. Like, this pressure and this thing. Like, there were days that I would just, I couldn't breathe. And I, and I say that with all due respect to the brothers that really couldn't breathe, but I could not take the breath that I needed to emotionally, creatively, physically, uh, relationally, like all these things were just weighing on me. And I felt so, and, and here's the odd thing, I felt so bad for feeling so bad that I didn't talk to anybody about it. Like it was, it was one of those things because you just, you're not supposed to feel like that when things are going this way, even though in the world things are falling apart. And I'm like, I, I just didn't know how to cope and I didn't know how to deal with it. And, and for me, it was, it was this, it's a moment of recognition that it's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to let that seep into your life, your creativity. And that's the thing when we talked about earlier, like, you know, when, when, you, when you finally had that moment that, oh, the game is really mine now. It was the mental health aspect of what I allowed one of the characters to go through. And that journey that I was allowed, able to take uh, uh, them on through that storyline that came from this, you know, this really personal place of having to get uh, within the mellow. You can understand this, man. Like, yo, it, it's almost taboo sometimes in the African American culture to start talking about your feelings and, and your, you're dealing with it and the mental aspects of it and break it down, like, you know, the, the mental illness, like your depression, anxiety, you know, and you, you start going there. And to be able to unleash it and allow it to come out in that way. Uh, spoke volumes to me. It uh, allowed me to get to a different place creatively. And now I look back on that time and I go, yo, it, I went through that. I was allowed to go through that. I was taken through that for a reason. And whether that's creatively, whether that's with my family, whether that's to love a different way, to give more, to be more sincere, to love better, whatever it was, I'm so happy that I went through that because I'm a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better friend, a better son. I'm, I'm, I'm better in so many aspects. And I also realize I have so much more growing to do and it's okay to grow through that. And um, yeah, it was a really interesting last couple of years, but I'm, I'm so glad that I'm here where I am. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I understand exactly what you mean in regards to, um, so there is a level of blackness and having a survivor's guilt, especially because we immediately see that the rest of our community is not really doing great. And then like, as we're getting more and more successful, we're just like, man, is there, uh, who do I need to donate to? Who do I need to talk to? I, I still send money home, uh, like constantly. I have had, uh, like even while writing on like these big projects, I have still once a week checked Indeed every Monday. Uh, I checked it yesterday uh, because it, it's one of those things where I'm just like, do I, do, do I deserve to be here? Do I deserve to have uh, anything that's close to a luxury or anything like that? And for new writers coming up, I just want to say, it is totally cool to have a day job. While writing Blade Runner, I've had a day job. I have, I have continued to be like, hey, I just want to be in a place where I feel comfortable. And like, I also want to be in a place where I feel comfortable uh, failing and trying my best uh, because, and like, it, if I get fired because I wanted to do something really weird with this IP or this franchise, I can be like, that's fine. That's perfectly cool. I will go back to coding or whatever and, uh, and make money that way. And I will continue to be able to like send money home and things like that because that is always like my main priority. So as people come into the writing game and they start to feel like, you know, like, hey, when I'm now on the inside looking out, like you're going to get these feelings. You're going to get these feelings of guilt. And you're also going to get these feelings of just like, of, like, what do I do with my finances? And what do I do about my family? And what do I do about this? And things like that. That's 100% normal. And you, uh, whatever path you take is your own path. And that's perfectly fine. 
Yeah, I want to, I want to, you know, you're hitting on something that I want to reiterate, which is worth talking about. Um, and we'll, let's all do this again in the future. Um, that there's no one way to do this. You know, there's, there's your way. Uh, and everyone can find their own way to work in this industry. We need to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, please, you've all been a pleasure. Please come back and chat anytime. Um, I want to ask what you're watching on television these days, what's getting you excited or inspired? What have been your standouts of the year? You get to be the year-end uh, final word. And Jen, let's start with you. Well, I'm going to steal the one that I know Melissa will want to, but we've got a, we got a long list. Um, Netflix has a uh, show from Spain called Money Heist. And the last part of it just came out uh, on Netflix. And it is one of the most just insanely smart and uh, well-done shows. Very, I mean, great cast and great production, but really well-written. And, you know, it's about bank heists. It's about stealing gold, but it's also every character gets their own sort of moment to shine. And it's just one of the, one of the best shows, I think, on um, TV right now. So Money Heist on Netflix. It really is. And it does do that thing, uh, Melissa, that you were talking about where it, it shows all the work, which I really love about it. It's like they turn this story over a thousand times before they set it down to paper and like nothing is overlooked. It's so much fun to watch. Uh, what else are you watching, Melissa? Um, well, I'll say we just uh, we just watched Wheel of Time. It's on episode six or seven now um, on Amazon. And uh it's one of those things where it, we were just talking about like mental health and, and going through all these emotions. And the last two episodes that aired, um, it's on Fridays, were so powerful emotionally. And it was really amazing. And, and Jen and I were talking about how there's these two characters that you see on screen for like 10 minutes and everything that happens to them is so gut-wrenchingly emotional and like you don't even you're like why like how did they succeed in making these two characters that you barely know and and you think oh that's really sad for them and then the other characters that are dealing with what happens that's where you're just like wow and like the last episode we turned it off we we're both just kind of like <laughs> like wow I had to sit with that for a minute because it starts off a little bit slower and it, it is a fantasy television show but it just it really hit you right where it needed to and it was one of those things where I think uh, we were both like really impressed with how they were able to accomplish that uh, where they started and where they went and so now you're like well I'm all in now because they really like what Mello was saying too like you're really getting into what's going on on the inside for these people and that's what you're wanting to pull out and, and they were definitely getting that reaction from us that they were if that's what they were trying to do because it was it was really powerful to see that so i'm excited to see what the next episodes are going to be well, that sounds great uh, you've you've convinced me to check it out um <laughs> mellow you've given us some good uh anime titles to check out which i absolutely will um what else are you watching these days um i well i already mentioned uh my personal favorite of the year is still Hot Taxi, which is like uh, a masterpiece and a masterclass in writing. But the other one, I really don't have to give much promotion to. It's like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. And um, it's uh, one of the highest rated shows in the world right now, which is Arcane on Netflix. And uh, that is, that I, I think that is the one of the best masterclasses of writing for any TV show I've ever seen. I, I can't believe some of the narrative tricks that they use. Um, and the, they made episode three a season finale for any other show. And then every episode feels like it could be a season finale for the season. I'm like, there's more. You're, you're going to wring my heart out more than this. Uh, it never takes its foot off your neck, uh, both emotionally and like your desire to see like the actions to come and things like that. And it's character work is so precise in terms of just subtle movements and just suggestions as to what characters are actually thinking to, and it, it pries something out of you where you're just like, I I need every character to come out of this, okay? And um, it, it's it's an amazing show. I recommend it to, from 
your, your grandma to whoever is uh, old enough to actually understand it and processing memories and <laughs> so watch it right now. So, yeah. Terrific. Thank you. That's a, that's a great recommendation. Uh, Devon, of course, we are all watching the game uh, available on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, what, <laughs> what are you watching these days? What's getting you excited? I'm going to give you all uh, uh, the, um, uh, the green light to do this one thing, and that's to turn the TV off. Like, <laughs> I'm not watching anything. I am not watching. You know how sick of why? Like, I got to go back to editing. And, like, you know what I'm saying? I watch, like, ESPN, and then I'll click it off. Like, seriously, it's okay. And I, especially when I'm, when when I am, like, because I give a, like, I go all in. I'm just crazy. I've done, like, 20-hour days. I don't watch anything, like, while I'm, like, so yeah. what will I, I'm going to be watching. What did you just say, Mellow Arcane? Uh, I'm gonna watch Money Heist. <laughs> and I'm gonna watch Dark over the Christmas holidays. But right now, I'm literally not watching a doggone thing. And for everybody out there listening, that's okay. You know, what I'm listen, Give your mind man. I've been, we've been doing this <laughs> podcast about TV writing for ten years, and here you are on the last episode of the of the year, being like, "Turn off your TV. Turn off your no TV. No one watch TV. Turn it off. Exactly. Go enjoy your families. Just, what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. Just read the scripts, I guess. You'll be back <laughs> in January. Turn it off. Go to the library. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you all so much. Uh, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with all of you. Uh, please come back anytime. Uh, and happy thank, you. thank you, guys. Happy holidays as well. All right.